From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Today's podcast builds on a couple of recent articles by our guests that highlight a widening gap in corporate performance and explain how companies can capitalize on accelerating trends to turbocharge their growth. They'll provide specific suggestions for how companies can position themselves to grow strongly out of the current crisis. And this is a topic that we'll address in more detail during an upcoming podcast as well. We have with us today Rebecca Doherty, who is calling in very early her time from San Francisco. Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, She is a global leader in our growth practice and serves healthcare, industrial, and technology clients. She also recently authored eight lessons on how to get the growth you planned. Nick Northcote is a partner in our Brussels office, currently on a fellowship, leading our research on corporate growth and strategy during the coronavirus pandemic. Nick was also a key contributor to our recent book, Strategy Beyond the Hockey Stick, upon which some of today's discussion is based, as well as the recent article, The Great Acceleration. Nick, you've analyzed how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the global power curve of economic profit that was at the core of strategy beyond the hockey stick. What has your new research revealed in how this crisis differs from the global financial crisis of 2008? Thank you, Sean. There's a lot of talk and confusion about what's happening in the stock market at the moment. And on average, stock prices are not far off their uh, pre-COVID peaks. However, when you zoom in and look at the spread of performance across industries, that spread or dispersion is relatively wide, extremely wide, in fact. Some industries have returned large positive returns, such as gold, some IT, and some grocers, and and many others. Others have made equally large losses, the likes of airlines, travel, and tourism, energy, and some services. What we were curious about was what this actually implies for the future um, of corporate profit pools. And so we used this data to effectively back-calculate what the market implies uh, for long-term economic profit of the largest 3,000 companies globally. Now, of course, everyone has a different view on the level of the market and whether that's a fair reflection of our new reality or not. But what we're, we were not really interested in the levels as much as we are in the sort of patterns that we see emerging. And those patterns are, we believe, meaningful, consistent across measurement periods and with what we see at our clients and very different from what we saw in the last crisis in 2008 and 2009. So what were some of your main findings in terms of the effect on the shape of the power curve, which in strategy beyond the hockey stick showed that the vast majority of corporate economic profit was earned by just the top quintile of companies and the middle three quintiles earned just above their cost of capital while the bottom quintile destroyed significant value. Have you extended your work on the power curve of economic profit to see how the pattern changed through the pandemic? So first message is that this crisis has led to a widening gap between those at the top and those at the bottom of the performance curve. This gap between top and bottom quintile was widening before the crisis, but it's dramatically amplified because of it. The top quintile, you know, has, uh, as a result of the pandemic, gained $240 billion of implied economic profit, more than it had in 2009. And even when you exclude the big four, like Amazon, uh, Apple, Alphabet, Microsoft, etc., they're still up by $150 billion. The bottom quintile, on the other hand, is you know, down close on, on $400 billion. So the curve's gotten steeper at both ends overall. We've read that the pandemic has had very different impact on different industries. How does that factor into the patterns that you're seeing? 
Yep, thanks, Sean. The first part of the story was about the cross-industry view. What we see when we compare the average of uh, 2019 economic profits with what the market is implying for future economic profits, that industries that were on top, of the, uh, on top before the crisis have further grown their economic profits. So the likes of semiconductors, pharma, software, media have all sort of increased their overall economic profit. Those at the bottom, on the contrary, have suffered as a result of the disruption. So the likes of banks, utilities, and transportation have made you know, bigger implied losses than historically. And so what you actually see when you apply this industry lens is this widening of this gap between the top and bottom performing sectors um, from before the crisis to today. And did you look at how this impact on individual sectors compares to what happened during the global financial crisis? Yes, we have is the short answer. It's... Um, and it's particularly interesting. I think what we saw in the last crisis um, was more of a reshuffling of industries. So, you know, it's been termed the great reshuffling. You saw industries like banks, um, energy, and some others fall from the top of this performance curve all the way to the bottom. And some that were at the bottom climb, you know, uh, up to the top. And so you saw this big, you know, reshuffling of industries, whereas this time what you're seeing is those that were at the top pulling further away from those that were at the bottom. That's really interesting. Why, why is this widening gap happening this time around? Is it just due to the way the pandemic has changed how we work and buy? You know, it's logical to assume that the shift is because of you know, short-term behavioral shifts due to the nature of the crisis. So what I mean by that is lockdowns, health concerns, pushing people online, or reduction in demand for discretionary goods and services. And while that is absolutely a contributing factor to this pattern, we believe it's only a small part of the story. So our analysis actually suggests that this widening gap has been driven largely by an acceleration of trends that existed before the crisis. And clearly what we see is that the industries that were growing economic profit before the crisis have you know, grown that profit by more and vice versa, for those that were, were sort of shrinking economic profit. And if we think about it, I mean, it, it makes intuitive sense, um, right? Most of the trends that we see coming to the forefront now were absolutely before the, there before the crisis. So the likes of everything digital, including e-commerce, telemedicine, education, and the likes, um, slowing globalization, more polarized politics. There have been very, very few big U-turns, right? One might question um, whether the return of big brands, the urbanization, or, you know, reduced climate focus may be examples of those U-turns, but I'd argue the jury is still out on those, and largely what we've seen to date is an acceleration. And I would argue even some of the uh, some of the trends that have been accelerated as a result of COVID, um, many of our clients are not expecting to revert. So um, let me give you one example. There's a, a grocer you know, in China that opened up 3,000 uh, drop and collect, you know, order and collect spots around some of their urban centers. They are not planning on shutting any of those down. And so it's just been a dramatic acceleration of, for example, online grocery, much of that expected to remain sticky. I think one other data point on this is, you know, we actually just ran a survey where we interviewed a couple of hundred people in our network to understand, you know, what was happening in terms of innovation in their company. And um, of those that we interviewed, 70%, roughly 70% believe that most of the innovation that they've sort of driven in their businesses uh, as a result of the disruption, they don't expect to revert back to pre-COVID, which speaks to the longer term nature of these trends. So what should those who find themselves on the wrong side of these trends do? 
And what advice do you have for those who want to identify the trends early enough to stay ahead of them? Yeah. Look, so I think in much of my client work, the challenge is actually less identifying the trends and more sort of how you free up resources to act on them, right? And so we always joke about, you know, the trends are clear. If you get 10 trend experts in to come and sort of tell you what the big 10 trends are in the world, you might get 11, right? But in other words, everybody knows what these trends are, but acting on the writing on the wall is, uh, is, is the difficult part, right? And so how do you free up resources, you know, uh, you know, take resources away from underperforming business areas to reallocate to and shift the portfolio towards tailwind? And that's often, you know, hamstrung by uh, rigid budgeting processes, some of the social dynamics in the top team, et cetera. But Sean, to answer your question more directly, um, some of our clients are actually starting to complement the usual expert-led brainstorming with advanced analytics or artificial intelligence to surface uh, opportunities. So, for example, there's a company called Spark Beyond, which, you know, is sort of a partnership with McKinsey, and they have a, a platform that's able to scan, you know, an AI platform, able to scan 400 billion web pages, all public and scientific data sources. And they use this to identify emerging trends, like early-stage trends, right, in everything from patent data to investment flows to, to online and social media platforms as well as to, you know, search for concrete investment opportunities. So it's really cool what they can do. And I think that's one example of, of how to identify some of these. I think your point around the resource reallocation to go after it, and I think very tactically the capability building um, is often where companies, you know, differentiate themselves, right? So whether you choose to develop an innovation capability, for example, right, to go in internally, um, organically grow this or if you decide to build an M&A capability to move into an adjacency that will be more trend-friendly, if you will, right, to go do this. And I think that's where you see, um, you know, really this investment in capability and how people or how companies are going about it differently and really start to differentiate themselves by what they're able to pull off. Thanks, Rebecca and Nick. Um, So for many, it seems like it's much less about identification of the trends than it is about mobilizing the resources for execution. Has your analysis highlighted any regional differences here? So the, the short answer is no. I mean, if you look at this at a, at a continental level, these patterns are, are very similar across continents. I think there are a, a, a couple of sort of nuances I'd, I'd add. Obviously, as you start getting more granular and overlaying different geographies, you get a lot more noise in the data. And so perhaps the patterns get a little bit less clear as sample sizes go down. But on average, the patterns hold. And then um, the second thing I'd say is, you know, obviously different, different economies have recovered at, at different rates um, naturally. So if you think about, for example, what happened in, in parts of the East compared to what's happening now in Europe um, or the U.S., um, the, you know, this sort of widening gap um, or difference between top and bottom industries is a bit narrower. So as we said before, some industries have taken much bigger hits than others during this crisis. Rebecca, are you seeing companies try to quickly diversify into areas that are growing to offset their losses caused by the crisis? Many hotels, for example, are currently offering their rooms as day offices. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a good question, right? Um, I think all, all, they are all trying to repurpose their assets, right? So maybe not quite in the travel industry, right? But we've seen, for example, in manufacturing, right? Um, especially kind of early on in the pandemic, you saw a lot of repurposing of factories to, to make ventilators or to do other things in response to COVID, right? There are also companies, for example, some transport companies, right, 
um, that are that are you know doubling down in certain areas, if you will. For example, for COVID testing, right? How do you transport specimens from the place where they are collected to the lab? And if you think about um, the vaccines that are coming up as well, right? There, there, there's a lot that will need to happen there. And so, for example, you may see some of the commercial airlines, right, do, doing more freight than they normally would. So there's a bit of a rebalance. I love your example on the hotels. And, and I think companies are just trying to be innovative. I, I don't know, honestly, that it's making up the difference. I see. Thanks. Um, we've spoken about the cross-industry view and industry-level trends. Is that all that's driving this growing performance gap between companies? Or is there something happening within the industries as well? Yep. So, so I think this cross-industry view only explains half of this dispersion that we're seeing between those at the top and those at the bottom. So half of that widening gap. The other half is actually coming, coming from companies within the same industry. So in 19 of 23 industries that we studied, those at the top quintile of their industry before the crisis have grown economic profits by more than those that were in the bottom quintile of their industry. So the stretching is happening both across industries and within industries. And what's particularly interesting about this is that it's not only happening in the high-performing industries, you know, where often you see the average skewed by a couple of, you know, outliers, the Amazons, the sort of Googles, etc. What, what you're seeing is it's happening both in high-performing industries and underperforming ones. We think it has a lot to do with the fact that companies that have what we call future-ready or resilient business models have pulled away from those with legacy ones, right? And it's a combination of this business model innovation as well as strategic moves that have repositioned portfolios or either before COVID or as a result of COVID, repositioned portfolios ahead of these trends that seems to be the differentiating factor. So, for example, like if you think about the companies that are within energy, right, you, you have companies such as solar, right, which are probably on the top, the top end of the bottom quintile, if you will, right, where they um, have made moves to, 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 to go with these solar trends, and th- those have really kind of accelerated during the, this downturn. You have other companies that are in the middle where they're doing a little bit of more of the legacy work as well as some of the more, you know, solar um, transformational work, right, and then they fall somewhere in the middle. So but a lot of these have been deliberate choices by these companies to be in one area versus not. There's an example um, of a company in the last downturn, right, that actually moved into financing of their products and specifically financing for lower income, right? And what you saw in their portfolio was that even though they were in a business that was not doing particularly well, they were kind of financing business to, to, to serve the lower income really helped their business take off. Rebecca, you also did a big piece of research on companies that managed to outperform their peers in driving profitable growth during and after the last downturn. What lessons do those outperformers offer companies today that are trying to reverse a performance decline or simply advance their growth during the recovery? So what we can learn from the last downturn is that the outperformers really leapfrogged during the recovery, right? So a little bit kind of coming out of the downturn and then really during the recovery. Right? And then what you actually see over this 10-year period in 2007-2018 is that those who really grew their revenues during this recovery point right, and pulled away even more than what we're starting to see right now, later on, other companies you know, really couldn't make up that growth. Right? And so it, even though you see you know, over time this you know, upward-trending line, it really is kind of turbocharged by this recovery period. 
So given that we have this great acceleration, if you will, of trends, what are some of the concrete steps companies can and should take to respond? So one of them is this leading with a recycle mindset. So, you know, Nick talked about this resource reallocation a bit in the beginning, right? So if this is not being purely reactive to some of the short-term happenings, but rather thinking holistically about, hey, this is my strategy. How do I think about continuing on that, assuming that you believe it's still sound, and pull back in some areas to invest in others, right? I think areas that really come out as places where people double down are kind of innovation, sales, and digital capabilities. To do this, though, companies need to create the optionality, right? So this isn't growth and investment at all expense, right? This is being smart, right? Putting yourself um, in an operationally and financially stable position. And, and to be totally fair, there are some companies that may not be at that place right now where they have that flexibility, right? And those companies should focus on shoring up the balance sheet, right? But for companies that can put themselves in this position and create that optionality, right, Right now is kind of the time to be thinking about, well, what do I do with this optionality? These companies, they really make big moves, right? Whether it is kind of turbocharging the core business through some business model innovation, looking at adjacencies that are maybe more trend-friendly, or even, you know, expanding into geographies that may be more resilient, right? So some of this can be done organically through business model innovation, some of this through M&A, some of this with turbocharging sales, right, if you think about your core business. So it's really a mix. And I think it's very individualized um, by company. And then M&A. M&A is a real lever, especially right now. But there's a lot of um, activity, if you will, kind of pre-transaction activity, kind of thinking about, hey, what is my M&A strategy? What is my diligence? Um, I think everyone knows, right, in 2020, M&A is definitely down. But judging by how companies are thinking about it, you know, would expect there to be an upturn um, at some point. And the final is really investing in capabilities. Think about running a race, right? This is the part where you're kind of running up a hill, right? And, or maybe doing the training, right? And figuring out, okay, well, what, what, when I have time to really unleash all, all of this, what do I want to unleash? So building the capabilities and the foundation now to be able to do that. So a long-term mindset, flexibility, M&A, and building up capabilities. Nick, you also mentioned resilient business models before. How big a role do those business model innovations play in widening the performance gap between the companies that you studied? Okay, yeah, and I think a lot of this dispersion or spread of performance within industries was driven by companies with future-ready, what we call resilient business models, so innovating around their business model, either before or now during, during the crisis. You know, take, for example, media. Um, here what we've seen streaming models pulling increasingly away from traditional satellite models, right? One of my favorite examples of this is actually telehealth consultations, right? Telehealth consul uh, consultations had been sort of single digits uh, shares of total cons consultations for, for many, many years. And in, in some cases, it was uh, up to sort of, in some places, it was up to 70% overnight, right? And you see the same in online education. Some of that, for sure, is going to reverse. But again, you know, we don't expect many of these sectors to... Uh, to revert fully. Uh, you know, many of the banking clients that I speak to um, are talking about never opening many of their branches again, right, after lockdown. And many are just, you know, been talking about omni-channel and online banking for so long and often sort of been worried about the fact that certain parts of the demographic take longer to switch online. Now it's, you know, this has accelerated that. And, it's, and you know, the list, the list goes on pretty much across across all industries. Maybe just to bring in 
the survey that I mentioned earlier again. I think 90% of people that felt their companies had responded to the disruption from COVID effectively cited some form of business model innovation. So this is absolutely, you know, something that is driving the, uh, these differences in performance. I just want to jump in and say it's interesting to think about the downstream effects too, right? So, so if you think about retail, right, I think many folks are ordering online and getting it delivered. What does that mean for the footprint of their stores? Are they going to sell these big stores? Or are they going to move to, you know, more smaller stores? Or, or about the warehouses, right? They're going to have warehouses that are probably smaller that can be faster, right, and, and to get the delivery there. And so then the companies that actually provide, you know, call it a smart warehouse, right, or, or companies that think about real estate, how do they think about that difference to, to capture this, this trend and this changing business model? Or if you think about cold storage, think about the companies that are actually doing the delivery, companies that are actually moving more online. But what about that whole supply chain, right, that needs to be built up to, to, to do that? So those are really interesting, I think, innovations that are happening throughout that are, yes, maybe starting from consumer preference, but really being piled down and kind of led through from the very start. Thank you. And so there are many opportunities if companies look closely at the shifts, it seems. Now, many of the initial shifts happened with incredible speed. Do companies need to make changes to things like their talent strategies to ensure that their new business models can endure? I think, I think it's just a general surprise by everybody how quickly some of this technology upskilling and transition to remote working models has, has happened and how little has gone wrong, right? And so the great example is the CEO of Microsoft who spoke about, you know, well, I can't remember his exact words, but it was something along the lines of, you know, we've seen... Um, the amount of digital innovation or sort of digital transformation that we've seen in the last two weeks is, you know, what we expected to see in the next two years. And I think the focus is now, you know, shifting to, if we look to the longer term, you know, where do we need to upskill further, improve our sort of technology um, to be able to manage not just our people working from home, but also our operations remotely in, you know, in industries ranging from, for example, you know, mining to oil and gas, et cetera. Yeah, and I think in line with what you were talking about, Nick, earlier, right, in terms of, you know, trends really accelerating and causing people to double down on different items, um, I think talent is actually a really big one, right? I, I think almost every company I talk to, you know, is, is, you know, before the crisis was thinking through how do I upskill, how do I win in this war for talent, right? How much do I recruit externally? How much do I try and upskill internally for new jobs? even with the decreased footprint, right? What do I think about what that implies or where do I want to recruit this talent? Um, Thinking about, well, how do I think about international talent? Yeah, now we'd like to switch to M&A. Rebecca, you mentioned that that was also a key lever that the outperformers employed in the last downturn. Can you first define what you mean by outperformers in that last downturn? So if we think about these are companies that both grow faster than their peers, as well as have, high, have higher um, economic profit and uh, margins than their peers, right? We, we really think of these as like winning companies around profitable growth. But one thing to think about, right, they haven't shifted their, um, you know, going back to this idea of through cycle mindset, right? They haven't shifted their strategy to, to go from a non-M&A shop to a big M&A shop, right? What they've done is, you know, this idea of programmatic acquirers, so companies that acquire businesses over time, build a real capability and a real presence versus doing a big bang deal. Um, you know, what these companies have done has they've really stuck to their conviction and saying, hey, you know, these M&A themes that I was executing against, 
you know, continue to make sense are maybe being accelerated right now. And, and how do I think about getting good value for companies right now, right? So it's not jumping at, oh, this is an interesting company that's up for bid. It doesn't fit my strategy. It's a great deal. It doesn't quite fit, but maybe I can make it work. It's actually thinking about, hey, what did I have in place before? And how do I think about, you know, bringing that in if right now is the right time? Second is this idea around competitive advantage. So not being a holding company, right? But thinking, hey, where is my competitive advantage and what is my right to own? Right. So is it that I have some technical capability? Is it that I have some, um, you know, client base or some customer base that would make this really attractive? And finally, is cash. This goes back to the idea around having operational flexibility. Companies that started with more cash and are in a stronger financial position are the ones that are really kind of doubling down now to say, hey, how do I accelerate my M&A strategy that I already have? So digital capabilities are obviously also in high demand these days. Are growth outperformers particularly active in digital M&A? And how does that compare with the previous downturn? So what you see is, you know, it was pretty equal, right, back in the early 2010s in terms of, you know, the number of companies that were pursuing digital deals. And then what you see in this 2015-2019 is, you know, companies that are starting to do more digital M&A are starting to outperform more. And in 2020, is that that is being accentuated. So as I mentioned previously, in 2020, overall M&A is down. Right? But I, what I find is an interesting trend here is of those that are still doing M&A, um, you know, those outperformers actually have, have widened, if you will, um, the, the difference um, to the non-outperformers in terms of the amount of digital M&A that they're doing. Thanks, Rebecca. So to wrap up, what are some of the key takeaways that you both want to leave our listeners with? So, you know, a few simple points, right? The value at stake is large, right? The gap in the box between the top and the bottom is widening, you know, both across sectors and within sectors. Second, multiple moves, right? It's not about doubling down in one area. It's about, you know, being strategic, you know, staying true to your North Star, but thinking about, hey, how do I spread my bets a little bit? How do I think, at least think about these different bets? And then, and then strategically choose where I want to double down, whether it's my business model innovation, whether it's you know, in adjacencies, whether it's in certain capabilities, or how do I really want to think about doing this? And then finally, that time to act is now, right? Or at least start to think about where you're going to place your bets, right? Because if you wait in a few years, we suspect it'll be too late, right? And you'll be caught um, trying to catch up with your peers. Yeah, maybe maybe just to build on, on that, I, I, I fully agree, Rebecca. And I think both the ambition setting and the set of moves that you put into your strategy are, are going to be very dependent on your starting position, right? You know, some find themselves in a really strong position with strong balance sheets, well positioned ahead of trends. For those, it's about, you know, it could be about at least deploying capital to strengthen that position, buying distressed competitors. For others who find themselves on the other extreme facing headwinds, you know, perhaps weaker balance sheets for them, it's really about survival, which means either aggressive restructuring or divesting just to free up resources and then using those freed up resources to reallocate towards, you know, trend friendly, let's call it business areas. So I think um, you know, there's a lot of nuance across the spectrum, but I think one thing that is consistent um, for everybody is that you know this gap is widening. The time to act really is now because those that are behind are falling further and further behind. And everything that we've studied in the past suggests that in times of disruption like this, you know, um, being the first to move and being and moving boldest, you know, does enable you to sort of uh, out, let's call it leapfrog your peers, regardless of that starting position. And I think Thomas Friedman put it best when he said, look, I expect an absolute explosion of 
disruptive innovation over the next five years, accelerated by the pandemic, because never before in our history have individuals and businesses had so many problems to solve, access to so much low-cost computing power, and almost free money. <laughs> and of course, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but I think it does sort of capture the sort of spirit uh, quite well. Nick, Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. And thank you to everyone who's listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. If you'd like to learn more about Strategy Beyond the Hockey Stick, we encourage you to visit mckinsey.com slash strategy beyond the hockey stick. That's all one word. We will also make a transcript of today's conversation available on the Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page on mckinsey.com, where you may also easily explore, filter, and search our library of previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback with us or an idea for a future episode, please contact us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. If you would like to receive alerts on our latest strategy and corporate finance insights, you can sign up on the bottom of our podcast collection page on McKinsey.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy and connect with us via our McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance LinkedIn page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.